everyone. I want to welcome you to episode three of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. In this episode, I get the opportunity to talk to Jim Fitzgerald, a former FBI profiler. Jim is one of the most respected forensic analysts and linguistics experts in the country. In addition to his many expert court appearances, Jim is called upon for his expertise by the entertainment and news industry. Jim and I talk about his role in solving the Unabomber case and several other major high-profile investigations. We also talk about his work as a technical consultant on TV shows like Criminal Minds and Sleepy Hollow, and his regular appearances on CNN. So it's a great interview, and I'm very excited about it. But before we get to the interview, just want to talk a little bit uh, about things that have been happening as far as crime fiction and true crime. And this has been a great week because we've had two shows that premiered this week. Of course, we had The People vs. O.J. Simpson uh, on uh, American Crime on FX. It's a new miniseries. I watched it, and it's pretty good. Um, Other than the gratuitous references to the Kardashians, which we could have done without, uh, it's a great show, and I think I will watch the full season. Uh, The other miniseries that was on this week was the Bernie Madoff uh, miniseries. Uh, That was on ABC, and I really enjoyed that too. I think I learned a lot. I have always been suspicious of claims that his sons did not know he was committing a Ponzi scheme. And uh, I can say that one thing this miniseries did was give me some pause. Um, I'm willing to consider that maybe they didn't know. They certainly paid the price. Uh, Both of them are deceased. Uh, One committed suicide and the other uh, died of cancer. Um, But uh, I can't wait to finish the book I'm reading. I referred to it last week uh, on Bernie Madoff. It's called Too Good to Be True by Aaron Arvilland. Uh, I haven't gotten to that part yet, but I'd love to see what the author says, uh, what she thinks about whether or not the sons were aware the, of the Ponzi scheme. So I can't wait to get further into into that uh, book to see what happens. Um, The other thing that I'd like to mention about uh, TV news has nothing to do with uh, uh, true crime or crime fiction, but it does have to do with the FBI, and that is the really, really interesting news that on this season of Survivor will be a retired FBI agent, a 72-year-old retired FBI agent. And what's really fascinating is that I know him. Uh, He was in the Philadelphia division, Joe Del Campo. Joe used to work on the bank robbery and violent crime squad, and he was very active in the evidence response team, with the uh, evidence response team. So I can't wait to watch the show and, and see what Joe is up to. At 72, he's in great shape. He's always been in great shape. I first met him when I was in the uh, FBI Academy, and my sweet mates and I used to uh, call him uh, behind his back. 
not Del Campo, but Del Macho. He was still Del Macho when he was in the Philadelphia division. And from the looks of the publicity photos, uh, he was Del Macho when he was on Survivor. So I can't wait to uh, to watch that show. don't usually watch Survivor. I think I watched the first season. But I'm going to watch it this time because I'm going to be rooting for Joe. Way to go, Joe! Uh, the last thing I'd like to talk about is I want to thank Joanna Penn uh, at the Creative Penn podcast. I have been listening to her podcast for the last year, and I have to give her a shout out because the truth is that she inspired me to build my own website. Who knew that I would be able to, to do that? And she also inspired me to create this podcast. So if you're out there listening, Joanna, I want to thank you for your unselfish support of new authors. And, of course, I want to thank all of my listeners. Um, it's been great communicating with you and seeing how much you're enjoying the show. And I want to thank you again for uh, signing up for my uh, crime fiction newsletter. It's going to come out maybe three or four times a year, and it's just going to curate all the things that we've talked about and additional uh, books uh, crime fiction, true crime, uh, especially those about the FBI. Sign up for that uh, newsletter. Visit jerrywilliams.com. So I just want to remind you also that all of the photos and the newspaper articles and additional materials that Jim and I talk about in our interview will all be uh, posted and linked on jerrywilliams.com. So if, if you're interested in learning even more about uh, Jim Fitzgerald and the Unabomber, just visit jerrywilliams.com, and I have all of those references and links posted there. All right, that's all I have to talk about today. If you have something you want to talk to me about, don't forget to email me or to put some uh, comments uh, in the comment section. And uh, here's the show. Hi, everyone. And I want to welcome my guest today. I'm very excited. Um, I guess in the uh, media business, this is what you would call a git. You know, I have a real-life FBI profiler, my good friend. Jim Fitzgerald. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jerry. Uh, good to hear from you, and glad to be on your podcast. Yes, I um It's real. It's, it's great timing because last week I spoke to Ray Carr, who you know, good friend of who, mine. Yes. Yeah. Um, who talked to us about uh, being a profiler in the field? Something that most people weren't even aware existed. They think all profilers um, are down at. Uh, Quantico, Virginia, at the FBI Academy, but you do train people in the field also. Yes, we do, and uh, every one of the FBI's uh, 56 field divisions has um, agents who we specifically train to uh, sort of be the um, liaisons between us and the local law enforcement agencies and maybe even their own FBI office. And they'll cl uh, collect information, gather information, talk to, you know, some of the police officers involved in a case uh, or their fellow agents. And they'll contact us and say, hey, we think we have a new case for you. And then that person will be brought on board. Then we'll deal with the, the police officers, our own agents, and the case will work from there. So, yeah, people like Ray Carr uh, were invaluable, certainly during my uh, uh, profiling career at the FBI. And he always knew how to put a case together and present just the facts we needed for them 
for us then to take it to that next level. Okay, but you work this full-time at the Behavioral Science Unit, which I understand has a new name now? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing, even over the years. Um, it, when I got there, um, it was the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Then we went to the Behavioral Analysis Unit, BAU, and that's when the folks from the TV show Criminal Minds started their show, and we can talk about my involvement there a little bit later. But uh, they monitored uh, our activities. We brought them through the academy, and they said, we'd like the name BAU. We're going to have that as the title of our uh, of our uh, fictitious uh, squad of profilers on the show, and they've stuck with that ever since. So, yeah, I was there in the early 80s uh, when it went to the BAU, and um, it's still that now with about three or four different subunits within the BAU. Well, I can't wait till you know, when we talk about that and get really in-depth. But, you know, I try to follow a format here, so I'm um, skipping around in my own format. So let's go back to the beginning. I like to start okay. at the beginning. You know, how you became a, uh, an FBI agent, you know, what you did in your early years, and then we'll talk about um, your time at the behavioral science down in Quantico. And then, you know, you also have a really good post-retirement job I want to talk about that too. So we have a lot to talk about. So take me to the very beginning. How did you get into the FBI? Where are you from? Well, I'll preface all of this, Jerry, by saying I've been asked the same question so many times while in the uh, still in the FBI and now even retired. I, I teach college courses, as you know. I do a lot of media interviews, and I even give you know guest talks around the country, around the world. So uh, as I think we'll talk about later, I actually decided to write my memoir to sort of give the longer version of how I got to where uh, I did. And I do have that book out, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. Book one is already published. Uh, book two is coming out in the spring, and um, I'll have more details on that later. Uh, that's about my 11 years as a police officer, and book three will be my 20 years as an FBI agent. But going back to your question, is yeah, I grew up in Philadelphia. I, there were no police or military in my family. I had generally good contacts with the police. Every once in a while, I was chased from the neighborhood schoolyard or something like that um, for doing things perhaps I shouldn't have been doing. But um, the, long and, uh, the long and short of it, I went off to Penn State, got a degree, a brand-new degree program called Law Enforcement and Corrections. They kind of call it criminal justice now. I didn't really know what I wanted to be, though. I wanted to be a probation officer, a parole officer, police I just didn't know, you know, FBI was always out there, but I knew I was too young. My first job was a store detective down at the old uh, Strawbridge and Clothier store at 8th and Market in Center City, Philadelphia. But, um, yeah, I was there for about uh, 14 months, and that was my first, it's not law enforcement job, but dealing with police directly, catching shoplifters, and, boy, there was a shooting in one of the bathrooms when I was there. This was an upscale department store. Some of my more dangerous uh, adventures uh, trying to arrest people <laughs> occurred in that store or, or chasing them down 8th Street to, uh, you know, uh, grab the leather jackets they just stole. But anyway, so that was that. And then, uh, but I've been applying all around the Philly area for uh, police department jobs. I didn't really even want to be a police officer necessarily, but uh, finally one came along. It was the Ben Salem Bucks County Police Department, a direct northern suburbs of Philadelphia. And I put uh, 11 years in there, as it turned out. At about my six-year point, I was promoted to sergeant. Right away, I uh, went into the detective division, and I worked a bunch of cool cases there, arrested an international hitman, and um, and all kinds of – well, I was one of the first people in the country to arrest 
a pedophile priest. Uh, I actually caught him in the act, and we're not going to get any more graphic than that with a young boy wow. uh, in his car. And and unfortunately, it was kind of he was arrested, and I did my job, but it was kind of swept under the rug. And before long, he's out, uh, you know, uh, different parishes uh, up and down the East Coast, and that'll be in book two that story. Um, but during this time frame, the FBI always interested me, um, and I got a master's degree at Villanova in uh, human organizational science. I knew I'd be pretty competitive at that point. I applied to the FBI. Jerry, that's when you and I first met. Yes, uh, it was. You went over my application. You uh, set up the um, the uh, the oral interview with um, with the three other agents, and um, and in my weird life, I my my department had also nominated me to to go to the FBI. National Academy, which is a very prestigious law enforcement training academy. It's at Quantico. It's all the same building as the FBI Academy, but it's strictly for police officers. And I was actually, I was actually, um, moving ahead and proceeding on two different applications with the FBI at the same time in like 86, 87, one for the NA. I eventually went there in 1986 for 11 weeks. And then, um, and also as a new agent, uh, as a special agent for the FBI. So a year later, after graduating from the NA, I was back as a brand new agent uh, in November of uh, 87, starting well, the had FBI a, yeah. Academy. Now, that had to make uh, going through the FBI Academy a little bit easier for you because you had already gone through it before. You had seen, um, you knew what the academy was like, you knew the, some of the instructors, and I take it that some of the instructors taught both the new agents and the National Academy. Yeah, and I knew my way around like the back of my hand, and I was giving, uh, when, they, when the other, they have, they have new agents that are already there for a few months, give the tours to the, to the brand new agent showing up on that Sunday afternoon. I said, no, no, I'll take this one. I've been here before. He looked at me, well, uh, okay, and I showed my, uh, my new uh, classmates around a little bit, so we, we took care of all that. Yeah, and some of the same professors were happy to see me there, uh, the, the faculty members who are also agents themselves. So, so that was a great start. Um, did my 14 weeks there back then. I think it's much longer now, Jerry. Was it about 20 weeks at least? Yeah, I think it's 20 or 21 weeks now because they've added yeah. all these extra classes in terrorism and intelligence yep. gathering. Yep, yep, which nothing wrong with that. The more training, yep. the better. Uh, my first seven years in New York uh, were, uh, I'm sorry, my first seven years in the FBI were in New York City. And um, I actually commuted every day from Ben Salem Township to uh, New York City, two hours up and two hours back. Um, but uh, I really enjoyed the work there. Uh, yeah, on a bank robbery squad, which they never take rookies, uh, but since they heard of my 11 years as a cop and, um, you know, prior to coming on, they kind of put me on double secret probation, <laughs> not just the regular probation. <laughs> and uh, I worked out and I was making arrests within the first uh, few months and, uh, there was a great task force of agents uh, and NYPD detectives, and I, I learned so much in uh, the, the four years on that squad. And I switched over to kind of a gang squad, worked bikers up in the area, and still worked threats and extortions and, and mixed in a, a bunch of other different types of cases there. Then lo and behold, uh, in, uh, in late 94 or so, uh, an advertisement, as we call it, a posting, came out for um, some openings in the profiling unit I put in for it. And by April of 95, uh, I was a profiler. Mm -hmm. I never even saw the movie Silence of the Lambs at that point. I just never got around. You know, I was a father, young kids, all that stuff. So people go, oh, just like the Silence of the Lambs. I said, yeah, I guess I better watch this movie since now I'm going to be a, a new profiler. So uh, I, I finally had, did. That had, 
Yeah, that had to be very competitive because I would imagine a lot of people had watched, you know, The Silence of the Lamb. They knew about the profiling unit. They knew about the great work that they did there. And there had to be a lot of people who were applying for uh, those positions down there. Um, well, as you know, with the FBI itself, it's very competitive to get in. Uh, we're competing with uh, candidates all around the country, all around the U.S. And uh, I'm not sure by the time you left the applicant squad, Jerry, but isn't it, you know, 100,000 people apply every year and maybe several hundred are actually hired? It might even be more competitive than that now, but uh, many are many are called, but few are chosen. I don't know if that's yes. our motto, but uh, I think I might have borrowed it from somebody else. <laughs> It works, um, mm-hmm. but uh, but that also applies. Numbers similar to that applies to the profiling. And uh, I was very fortunate to get in there, uh, moved to Quantico, and uh, my very first case. We did about twelve weeks. So now here's another academy for me. So I did twelve weeks as a young police officer at an academy. I did uh, eleven weeks in the FBI NA, uh, fourteen weeks as a brand new FBI agent, and now I'm back in a mini academy for profilers. So that was about twelve weeks long. And I uh, graduated in mid-June, um, went for a two-week um, vacation just to my uh, to the beach down in South Jersey. And um, next thing you know, I get a phone call. Jim, this case is kind of breaking out in San Francisco. Would you want to go out there for 30 days? Uh, case in San Francisco, would that be? Yeah, it's the Unabomb case. You've heard of it? I said, this is my boss calling me from Quantico. Uh, yeah, I heard of it, but um, I, I really haven't worked it before. I don't know too much more than what I read in the media. Well, anyway, Jerry, <laughs> the 30-day assignment turned into a year and a half, and guess what? Uh, within a year, we had uh, Ted Kaczynski under arrest. Wow. So let me get this again. For, you were supposed to be going out to San Francisco for 30 days to try to figure out who this Unabomber guy you know, was. And you ended yep. up out there for a year and a half? Yeah, they so much liked what I was giving them. Remember, this is my first case as a profiler. Now, the, the Unabomb <laughs> Task Force had been in existence for about a year plus at that point, but they wanted a profiler uh, there with them, and they started for 30 days to see how it would all work out. And uh, I said when I got out there, I was not a linguist at that point. We can talk about that a little bit later. I went back to school to get another degree. Uh, a few years later, but I've always been an avid reader. I've always done crossword puzzles, cryptograms. I, I hardly ever lose at Scrabble. I have a way with words that I, I can just look at them and I can retain them. And remember, so, I read it, you know, 17 so pages on. before. Right. So hold on. You're going to tell me that you read every last word of the Unabomber's manifesto. Backwards, forwards, and upside down, and even with a few beers in me at night to make it digest a little more readily. Um, okay. Yes, it's a very difficult read, and I remember to this day, it's um, <clears throat> uh, 56 single-space typewritten pages, 35,000 words, uh, with 26 notes at the end. Um, and um, it was a difficult read at times, and sometimes in the morning, I would start halfway through, so I would be fresh, and then you know I'd be uh, and take it to the very end. But um, but we found a lot of clues in there that nobody had found before. And that's why the bosses at the task force wanted to keep me on board. It wasn't technically profiling work I was doing; it was more as I would later call forensic linguistic analysis. But I'm the one that found uh, the reversed uh, axiom that he used that nobody picked up at the time. And we're Which somewhere was? buried on paragraph 180. He luckily numbered each paragraph in his manifesto. And um, 
and you know, blah 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 about uh, technology and environment, and this, that, and the other. Big government, big business. And at the very end of that little paragraph, Jerry he writes, "quote But you can't eat your cake and have it too." End quote. Uh, I actually read through that. Have once. your cake and eat it too. Everyone uh, else so says you can't it. have your cake and eat it right. too. Right. And I said the guy finally made a mistake because Jerry he was a perfect writer. He never made mistakes, and that's with an old 1934. Um, you know, I, I think it was Smith Corona typewriter, but definitely a manual typewriter. So and, no typos, um, no grammar issues. No, I'm, and if he did have a typo, he would cross it out and correct it right there. I mean, he did have wow. the occasional typo, but meticulous. he always did Very meticulous. So what a lot of people don't realize, you hear people say, "Well, the brother turned him in." Well, anybody in law enforcement or investigations knows just because you get a phone call, "Hey, Joe Smith's robbing the liquor stores every Friday night." You can't go out and arrest Joe Smith based on that phone call alone. So we had to take, uh, so David Kaczynski finally calls us in uh, the task force in January, uh, actually February of 96, 20 years ago this month, Jerry. And oh. um, my brother may be the Unabomber. Okay, sir, thank you. We'll add him to our list of 2,500 other suspects. And, uh, of course, he started giving us some information. We talked to his lawyer and the rest, uh, as they say, is history, um, and we did. But this find, analysis, this analysis of the manifesto, finding these little uh, unique yep. things that he did, yep. was the evidence that you needed to um, to further the identification. Yeah, because there was nothing else on the bombs he sent. Remember, he killed three people, almost brought down an airliner, and injured about two dozen more. I mean, losing fingers and hands, things like that. This was a bad guy. I think the media now sometimes makes them like a stately professor and and postulating about the evils of technology. This guy was a serial killer, uh, a serial bomber. And uh, it was in his own language that actually got him caught. And I, I got to say, I'm the one that came up with some of these language features. Now, we had a great task force out there, great bosses, gave me a lot of leeway and let me assemble a team to work with it. So it was a team effort. But it was uh, Kaczynski's own language that brought him down because the parents the mother and the brother saved everything Ted ever wrote to them from his little cabin in Montana. And they started turning that over to us. And I started finding the matches, if you will, the consistencies between the Unabomber's writings and the Kaczynski's writings, including one time where he wrote in a newspaper article he had published, uh, actually it was a letter to the editor. You can't eat your cake and have it too. Bingo. Wow. wow. And uh, that was one of hey, the Hey, stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. Cause you talked about this cabin. Um, oh yeah. Where was the cabin again? The cabin was in the outskirts of Lincoln, Montana, proverbial okay, middle you, of nowhere. And you gave me a photo of you um, in front of that cabin. Correct. Um, I'm going to put that in the show notes for this uh, particular episode on jerrywilliams.com. So if anybody wants to see it, uh, they can go to jerrywilliams.com and take a look at that photo. I'll also put a link to your own website where there's some additional right. photos. But um, uh, what was that like, going to that cabin and seeing, you know, where he lived? Did he actually make bombs there, too? Oh, yeah, that was his little bomb-making factory, all within an 8-foot by 12-foot cabin with no electricity and no running water. Um, yeah, the picture you, you your listeners may see there, uh, that was about uh, three days uh, after the arrest. I was there. I wasn't there for the arrest itself. I was still helping put parts of the probable cause uh, affidavit together. Uh, yeah, then CBS News found out about that we had uh, people up in uh, Lincoln 
and we're about to identify the Unabomber. Uh, so my third book will have will cover a lot of this story, and there's even some TV uh, miniseries we're putting together. Uh, I'll hold the facts off on that for now. But there's a lot of stuff going on about the Unabom case and his 20th anniversary of his arrest. And um, and uh, but a lot of the public don't uh, do not know about the whole investigation, the whole arrest. But yeah, to be in the to walk inside the cabin of the guy that uh, for almost 20 years had been terrorizing people around the U.S., an ingenious criminal mastermind. He left no actual evidence on any of his bombs or the letters he wrote or manifestos he mailed, but it was the language itself that gave him in and uh, and put him behind bars for the rest of his life. Now, there's no way to rationalize what he did, but I'm sure in his mind, he had a reason. What was that? I, I don't I don't remember. Uh, Why did yeah, he do he, it? Um, yeah, basically, he was railing against the society in which he lived. Uh, he was a brilliant person, Ph.D. Um, in mathematics, taught for two years as a professor at Berkeley, but then just couldn't deal with people. He blames it on his parents. He blames that they um, prohibited him from socializing properly. They pushed him too hard at his books. And he had to have an outlet somewhere, so um, he just took it out on society as a whole. He believed uh, uh, people should live in an agrarian society of tribes of no more than 30 people and live off the land, and that's what he was trying to sell. And quite frankly, having read the manifesto back in the day as many times as I had, like a broken clock, Yuri, I mean, <laughs> you know, every few pages he comes on to something, well, all right, well, that's not a bad idea. But, of course, you cannot justify it or rationalize it by by blowing people up, um, and uh, that's what he chose to do, and that's what eventually um, put him behind bars for life. Wow. And the people that died, were they targeted, or were they, how did he select who was going to receive these bombs? <laughs> yeah, and in profiling circles, we have a term for uh, that, and it's called for how someone, how a criminal chooses his victims. And in this case, we called it representational targeting. So in other words, the people who received the bombs um, uh, or were targets of his uh, IEDs, uh, improvised explosive devices, um, they mostly went through the mail. In the early days, he would place some of them, like in a university uh, cafeteria or a library, something like that. And he'd just wait for whoever walked in and would pick up the box. The little plunger would you know, uh, move inside and it would detonate the device. But he almost got caught, and that's where you did the famous iconic picture of the guy in the aviator glasses with the hoodie right. and the curly hair. He almost got caught in uh, Utah in 1987, um, and that's where that composite came from. And after then, he took six years off, and then uh, he came back with a vengeance in 1993, uh, but he never placed his devices anymore at all. He always made them small enough they could fit into a regular mailbox with like you know 30 stamps on each one, and they would be off to his victim. So he would pick them through you remember in the, uh, in the library, the, the, usually the thickest book in the library, you couldn't check it out, used to be called Who's Who in America. Well, he would go to the local library in, um, in Lincoln, Montana, and he would research his victims uh, who were involved. Wow. And the Unabom, I, I should say to your listeners, um, we probably should have done this early on, but Unabom is an acronym. It stands for University Airline Bomber, because in his first five to eight bombings. They were either universities or airlines were his targets. And there were sometimes names on the boxes um, if they were mailed, 
but other times they were just placed at different locations. And, um, and, but there was always universities airlines. He split, he then moved over to uh, computer type stores. And then towards the end, um, a marketing person in North Caldwell, New Jersey, because his company represented the um, Exxon Valdez uh, chip disaster in Alaska. And, like a big oil spill. Yeah, and they were like the PR firm for it. So he picked this guy out uh, in North Caldwell, New Jersey, and he was uh, the next to last bombing victim. And then the very last bombing victim was April of uh, ninety. Uh, six, a, a forestry lobbyist in Sacramento, California, who had a strange looking package, uh, come into his office and, um, his secretaries told him about it and he laughed out loud and said, ha ha, yeah, look at this thing. It's probably from the Unabomber. Did he open it? To his office, he opens it and he's killed. Oh. Was from the Unabomber. Wow. So, um, yeah, very sad scenario there, but, um, Fortunately, so what, did, um, what, did our, what did our boy Ted get? What was his sentence? The way it worked out, it was uh, the whole deal they worked out with his defense team was um, two life sentences without parole. And um, he's in federal custody in Florence, Colorado, uh, 23 uh, hours a day in his cell, and he never gets out. Um, he is allowed to read and write, and he can you know send things off to people. There's people all over the world. Like right? you can send things some... off to people? Well, That's kind of yeah. scary. Yeah, they're very thin envelopes with people, oh, okay. um, to okay. people with, with papers. He's not making okay. any bombing devices. So uh, my, I've always wanted to visit advice. him in, in prison, but we've never quite worked that out. Um, and my advice to you is if you do get any type of mail from him, <laughs> don't open it. <laughs> Good advice. Well, that is a great start to a career as a profiler. Um but I'm sure, even though that's the case that we all know so well, it's got to be uh, several more really exciting and intriguing cases, many, many more, that you've worked. Um, are there some others that you'd like to talk to us about? Yeah, well, it, it's funny, and Jerry, you may remember this from the FBI. If you're successful in one case and maybe you come up with sort of a clever or an ingenious or just a sort of a skillful way of solving it, the Bureau kind of recognizes you as the expert in the case <laughs> and uh, for better or worse sometimes. And uh, uh, I, I think for better in my case. So after helping to solve the Unibom case with the language involved, I kind of became the guy in the profiling unit. Whenever there was written communication of some sort and eventually morphed into emails and, and bloggings and, um, and things like that, um, I would be the one that would get the letter or note, whatever it is, turned over to them. That includes the John Benet Ramsey case, uh, which I put a you know work into, and then we actually got a professor to come in uh, and 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 take over sort of where I started. Uh, later, the DC sniper case, and I predicted early on after their killings that they would start writing. I didn't know they, you know, we figured maybe one person um, that uh, it would be uh, they would the person would start writing. For some reason, you know, to the to the media, to the cops or something, and that certainly happened. And I'm the first one looking at those letters that accurately said, I think we have an African-American male, at least one, maybe two, as our sniper. No, no, snipers have always been white guys in the past. Well, I guess, tell you what, uh, language-wise, I think we have an African-American writing these uh, uh, these letters because linguists have studied for years all different sorts of dialects in the U.S., uh, and that including African-American English. And it's not a right or a wrong thing. It's just 
certain little, you know, uh, telltale signs. And it turns out I was right there. So uh, I was correct there in the writing analysis of the DC sniper. Um, now, was this before or after you went? Because you did said you, you said you did go and get a master's degree in forensic. Yes, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. You you listen well. And um, <laughs> actually, in the year 2000, I started uh, my second master's degree program at Georgetown University, one course per semester, and it was in the field of linguistics and. Uh, and uh, I learned a whole lot, you know, uh, about language. I certainly had a good running start just being an avid reader and, 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 and enjoying word games and things like that. But now I was learning the formal scientific background behind it. And it took me uh, five years, you know, going part time. But I did get my uh, second master's from Georgetown in 2005. And from that point on, I called myself a forensic linguist along with profiler. And I got to say, uh, I've been asked this before, but I am the only criminal profiler and forensic linguist in the world. And that's a nice combination to have when looking at cases. And uh, certainly in the criminal realm, when I was still in the FBI, now that I'm retired in the private sector realm, you'd be surprised the number of companies and corporations that have problems with anonymous letters, emails, uh, you know, postings on a blog site somewhere. And they, they bring in my company, the Academy Group, to... Uh, to help figure out who's sending these things, look at the threat level, all that stuff. So being a formally trained and educated forensic linguist working the cases I have worked certainly helped uh, the latter stages of my FBI career uh, as well as now in the uh, the private sector. All right, this Academy Group, it's a, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Is that where uh, Ray Carr also uh, yes. does some does some work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Academy Group was founded in, I believe, 1989 by Roger DePew, uh, one of the uh, early um, profilers in the FBI. He retired. He brought in some other early profilers, Roy Hazelwood and Dick Ald, and, and there's a whole second generation. I'm probably third generation of of, uh, of, of retired profilers uh, in the company. We're located in Manassas, Virginia, and we're not investigators. We're not PIs. We're experts in our respective fields. And mine is mostly forensic linguistics, also profiling. And we have a website, uh, www.academy-group.com, uh, and explains everything we do there. So, yeah, we have clients around the world, and um, and uh, we're all experts. And, and so there's seven partners in the firm. I'm one of the partners, and we have about 25 or so associates. And Ray Carr is one of our associates, and we keep him busy uh, with the various uh, – uh, you know, training uh, venues as well as cases when they when they present themselves. So, yeah, we're okay. busy and uh, and it works guess, well for everybody. I'm just going to say that uh, for if somebody missed that, they don't have to worry about copying it down. I'll also have a link to the Academy Group at JerryWilliams.com too, so they can find the information there. So it sounds like you're busy in retirement because I know there's some other things, some very interesting things that you are. Uh, doing outside of the work you're doing with the Academy Group. Tell us about those. Well, um, besides uh, being an author and with a second book just a few months away from publication, uh, yeah, I had this little thing going with Hollywood, and um, <laughs> uh, specifically the show Criminal Minds, and in the last uh, six, eight months or so, the show uh, Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Two different kinds of shows, uh, but both feature FBI agents as their protagonists, multiple agents in Criminal Minds, and and one in Sleepy Hollow. And um, 
And my job is to uh, keep it real. I don't give the writers their story ideas. They come to me with their scripts, and um, I'll look at them, and and they can go all over the place in terms of you know personal interactions and who's you know eyeing someone for this, that, or the other, or what demons are coming into the landscape on Sleepy Hollow. There's all kinds of monsters in that show. Makes it fun. But when it comes to the actual FBI part, I do my best to keep it real and say, you know, the handcuffs go on behind and uh, not in front and, you know, make sure that, uh, you know, the agents are wearing the raid jackets when they go here. And there's some of the obvious tactical type things. But I also try to help them with nuanced issues, too. The well, an agent really wouldn't say that. And, you know, Jerry, it's funny in federal law enforcement, for some reason, in the FBI, our the office the divisional boss is called SAC. Um, in the rest of federal law enforcement, they're called SACs. And, of course, it stands for Special Agent in Charge. So for some reason, decades ago, someone in the FBI said, no, we're going to say the three letters instead of pronouncing the word like, you know, a sack of groceries. So, so I, that, you know, was, I correct. that was probably Hoover who didn't want it to be called a it, sack. It, it <laughs> probably was. So he said SAC. <laughs> And, um, and, uh, and, and, and was law ever since in the FBI. So little things like that, I helped them with. And, you know, when writers, like when Criminal Mind, I'll never forget one of the first episodes I worked, um, they're so conscious of word length and time that they have 42 minutes basically to tell their story with credits and commercials and everything else. And, you know, two extra adjectives can throw off the time slot. So I'll never forget one time dealing with this agent. You know, oh, the, 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 on Criminal Minds, the teams of the small police department, they've had two officers killed and, you know, and, and um, the, um, the chief's talking to Hotch and we're trying to get this across, that across. I said, uh-huh, uh, but I'm, I'm running out of time here. And then he's going on. I said, uh, here's an idea. Um, you know, whenever a police officer is killed, um, the chief always hands out little uh, black um, um, not pieces of tape, but they almost look like pieces of tape to put across the badge, a commemorative right. black bar, and you usually wear it for 30 days after your fellow officer is killed. So I told this writer about this, something he never knew. He said, Fitz, you just saved me five minutes of dialogue. I'm going to have him hand out this little badge, you know, uh, tape thing. And, and so a little thing like that, I mean, it's important in real life, don't get me wrong, but just a little visual like that, kind of encompass an entire five minute scene for him. So they're very appreciative of that. I, I work with my good You know what that reminds the, me of? That reminds me uh, of, and I'm sure as an author you've heard this term, show, don't tell. So instead of having to tell uh, the story about uh, the police officer dying and the fact that they're all sad, you can just show them covering their badge with this strip of black. Brilliant. Well, you're right, and the picture's worth a thousand words, and then literally almost in that case, uh, it, it worked for this writer. Uh, so to this day, I still deal with the folks on uh, Criminal Minds. Uh, my good friend Jim Clemente, also a retired FBI agent profiler, he's a full-time writer now. I kind of help him out on the scripts uh, as the unofficial um, technical advisor, but I am one of the other two technical advisors on the show on the Fox TV Sleepy Hollow Um uh, with my friend Veronica Maxwell, who retired out of the New York division. So, uh, yeah, we have fun doing our best to keep it real. We can't dictate to these writers, you know, how real to keep it, but we do our best to strongly suggest. No, nah, an agent wouldn't really say that or do that. Um, uh, and in most cases, they listen to us and they, and they work it out. So Now, this is totally off track a little bit, but I know, um, have you been watching uh, Jennifer Lopez's uh, show, Shades of Blue? 
Jerry, I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I've seen some it really is good. It really is good. Okay. But I almost, I almost didn't watch it because of the very first episode where she, on purpose, shoots one of the fellow officers uh, close range. She has on a um, a ballistic vest on, but she does it in order to make it look like a bad guy um, shot him. And so she shoots him in close range, and 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 the vest supposedly stops the bullet, and they walk away. And I thought to myself, what? What really would have happened to this guy, this police officer, if she shot him in his vest at close range? I mean, he he'd be pretty messed up, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah, and there are every once in a while I have discussions with writers about things. I've had criminal minds a few times, like a hostage situation. And of course, one of the characters walks right in the front door and, and confronts the hostage taker. And you know, Jerry, we would never do that in real life. Maybe throw a phone in or whatever, but you would not send another victim in. So, uh, we've had those discussions. Ultimately, they make the decisions and I say, all right, well, here's what I told you. And uh, and you have to live with those. It is fiction. It is Hollywood. Yeah. And I respect that. Um, we just do our best to try to keep it uh, as authentic as we can otherwise. Okay, good. Because I've watched this show and I know they have to have, you know, a police officer or some law, law enforcement person. And I thought that guy would be in a lot of hurt. You know, even with the vest yeah. on, he would be yeah. bruised. He would probably have some yeah. cracked ribs. Um, I would hate for anybody at home to decide to put on a ballistic vest and have somebody shoot him. Not a good idea. Excellent points because they don't always work and they definitely cause trauma to the body uh, under the vest. And you could definitely break ribs and throw off a heartbeat. So, yeah, we know all those bad things. Do not try that at home, anyone who's listening to this. <laughs> all right. But the, as a consultant, as, a, as a, a Hollywood consultant, you do try your best to give them the information so that they can get it right. And it's up to them to decide whether or not to, to take your advice. Sure. And I'm in Criminal Minds. I've met all the actors. I've met all the writers. I think you have a few photographs I sent you with a few of the TV, um, uh, with a few of the characters, the actors mm -hmm. from Criminal Minds. And, um, and in fact, the, any of your listeners who watch the show remember from uh, seasons nine and ten, there was a character named Alex Blake, played by Gene Triplehorn. Well, I invented that character for the writers. Oh, really? We liked her. They'd already hired her. She was coming on board, and they said, we got to give her a background. And I was out there with them for a few days, and we kicked a bunch of ideas around. And I said, well, you guys have met my fiance, right, Natalie, the professor, the linguistics professor at Georgetown? Oh, yeah, yeah, we met her. Well, why don't we make Alex Blake, a.k.a. Jean Dribblehorn, why don't we make her a professor at Georgetown of linguistics? And But she's also an FBI profile. And there's kind of a little stretch there. That's kind of jumping the shark a little bit, as they say, but that's okay. And uh, and we had fun actually giving her some course assignments and, and some of her lectures in front of classroom. And, of course, Natalie, my fiance, got a kick out of the episode where she's teaching a class on linguistics. Her cell phone rings. She picks it up and just looks at her teaching assistant and says, I got to go, homicide, and just walks out the door. <laughs> Natalie said, boy, I wish it was that easy. So right, um, I will make was, sure I have that picture of Natalie and Jean and you. Uh, on yeah. uh, jerrywilliams.com, too, because it is a great picture. And a uh, very lovely, lovely fiancé you have. Uh, oh, you're well, a lucky man. You, and, and then uh, the other thing that you're doing post-retirement is teaching. Tell us a little bit about that, too. Yeah, uh, I've been approached by um, 
I do guest lecturing all around the world at different universities, either for one class or for a seminar, but I've actually worked uh, officially for two different universities. Uh, one is Hofstra University up in Long Island, New York, and the other is the Richard Stockton College. I'm sorry, now it's Richard Stockton University of New Jersey, uh, not too far outside of Atlantic City. And I've just been recruited by people there at both schools, and um, and um, I teach a one-week course in forensic linguistics uh, every April at Hofstra. You can go on their website and figure that whole thing out if you're uh, if anyone's interested. And I also teach a more traditional course at uh, Richard Stockton in forensic linguistics, uh, you know, over the course of a regular semester. So, uh, yeah, it's strictly forensic linguistics, and uh, it's uh, it's actually a graduate course. Both are graduate courses, and um, you know, regular grad students and um, you know some professionals from the field take these courses: law enforcement, intelligence gatherers, private security, those type things. So. Um, uh, it's while it's academic oriented, it's, it's, it's heavy with case examples and, and homework assignments that they have to kind of figure out, you know, uh, who wrote this letter, male, female, young, old, uh, is a threat real? Is it fake? And, uh, and then we walk them through it. And by the time they're done the course, they pretty much are calling, uh, calling the shots right. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. Uh, I just do maybe once a, some, uh, once a year or so teach one of these courses, but just, it's good to keep me fresh in that regard. And, um, and a couple of good schools, and uh, it's always fun to stay on top of those things. Okay. Now, just about running out of time, but I will, and you kind of hinted at this, and then you pulled back a little bit about uh, a mini-series, but I know that there's an article uh, that was in the press of Atlantic City uh, that you mentioned a little bit more about uh, the mini-series that is going to be on about the Unabomber. And so I am going to beg you to give us just a little <laughs> bit more about that uh, before we uh, end uh, end our conversation, please. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, I, I've assigned my the, the book rights to a book number three, which I'm just beginning to write now, uh, but specifically on the Unibom case to the Discovery Channel, and they're going to do a mini series uh, sometime in 2017 on. Um, on the Unibomb case. They call them limited series now. It's going to be kind of psychological, uh, you know, a deep, dark thriller, as they call it. They're kind of modeling it on um, True Detective. HBO did a few of those. So it's going to be true. It's going to be factual. Um, my character is the main character, Jim Fitzgerald. No, I am not acting as myself. It'll be a guy about 20 years younger than me because uh, it happened about 20 years ago. I don't know who the cast members are yet. But we're definitely moving ahead in writing and uh, and and, and um, uh, pre-production of the whole uh, matter. And I may be moving out to L.A. for a little while once we get more seriously into it. So, yeah, that'll be out sometime in 17. Don't know exactly uh, when, uh, but uh, Discovery Channel is going to – it's not a documentary. It's going to be a scripted series. They want to delve, you know, feet first into this new genre for them and really come out, uh, you know, with some top writers, top directors, and top actors. And I think it's going to be – uh, a very excellent presentation. We'll tell all the the inside uh, stories that people never knew before about the case, and uh, it, it'll make it very, very interesting. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And before I forget, yeah, my uh, my book is out there, A Journey to the Center of the Mind, um, and you can get all my information in that regard, include where I'm going to be, and, and when I do various talk shows, CNN, things like that. Uh, my website is uh, jamesrfitzgerald.com. So I think you'll have a link to that, too, on yours, Jerry. So uh, yes, I will. listeners free to go back and forth and check all these things out. 
All right, so we're just about done here. Is there anything that I've missed? No, except um, in book two, the towards the end of book two, Jerry, you are a pivotal character. You are the FBI agent who I am dealing with to you know go through the hiring process, and you're very you're very official uh, and you're very respectful. I I wouldn't say we were friends then because you had a job to do and I was applying, but um. But I, I mentioned you by name, and I, I know I ran that by you a little bit earlier, and uh, you come out looking very well and very smart because obviously you agreed to hire me. So um, <laughs> obviously that was a, I like that. a high well, point I had, of your career. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I, yeah, claim, yeah. I claim all of the things that you've done. You couldn't have done any of it if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I was uh, the hiring agent at the time and uh, gave you a thumbs up. You did. And there's some interesting twists and turns uh, in the last few months of my application. And we'll let the uh, yeah, listeners we'll pick wait, up we'll... the book in a few months when that comes out. Yeah, but I'd be glad I to will... come back on. There's a whole the thing we missed, uh, the 11-year uh, of my police career in Ben Sound. Very interesting. And we'll hold off on that for now. But maybe, Jerry, at some point in the future, when the book first comes out, I'd be glad to give you another interview and we'll get more into depth on that matter. Oh, that'd be great. And I do want everybody to know, I haven't mentioned it, but I did, uh, I did buy your book and I, I did, I'm halfway through and it's really, really good. I have to admit that I was thinking, I don't know if I really want to read about his early years, even before, you know, he became a police officer growing up in, um, in all new Pennsylvania. But the way that you write the book, it's very interesting and it brings you right along. And it kind of, and it kind of shows you your you know fighting with neighborhood kids and things that happen having your bike stolen things that happen in your life that all that you had no uh, relatives in law enforcement what kind of helped push you in that direction so it's interesting and I recommend that uh, people pick it up. Well, thanks, Jerry, for saying that. And uh, yeah, um, there's even a few um, bonus chapters on my website uh, from there as well as even into the new book. So. Thanks for those mentions. And, uh, yeah, it's fun going back and do one's past and, and writing some things down. And there were some interesting things that happened, good, bad, and in the middle. And they're in book one. And uh, more of the stuff as a police officer in book two coming up shortly. Okay. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Especially, it's, you know, it's just starting out. You are my third person that I've interviewed. Uh, wow. So I just want to thank you for taking the time. I know you are used to talking to CNN and Fox and all of those big-time people. But thank you for talking to uh, FBI Retired Case File Review Podcast. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. And that's the end of the show. Don't forget that photos and links to newspaper articles related to this interview can be found at jerrywilliams.com. Today's episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Reviews with Jerry Williams. Thank you.